So we are in the middle of our series, Too Good to be True. Uh, the aim of this series is to answer questions that you might have about the Christian faith, or that your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues, people like that may have asked you about the Christian faith. And I think you know what it's like, I know what it's like. Someone comes up with a real stinker of a question, and you're like, I don't know how to answer that. That's a really good question. I'll get back to you. And then you life moves on. You might not remember it. I want to look at some of these questions, partly so that they can go on the podcast and people can come along and see that and hopefully say, hmm, yeah, is the Bible just full of fairy tales and myths? But also I want to equip us as his followers, as his missionaries in this world to be able to give a good account for the hope that we have. That is what we are called to do. We're not called to go out and preach necessarily in your workplace or to your neighbours. You are called to be salt and light, and as Peter says, ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Live faithfully and then share when an opportunity comes. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, the first week we looked at whether Christianity still matters in this day and age. And last week we looked at whether we can trust the Bible. I am happy to say the podcast is now up to date. So if you wanted to go back and listen, you can listen to that. Actually, all of the preaching for 2023 is in there. So if there's anything that you want to revisit from last year, you can go there and look at it and listen to it. God did some really good stuff with us last year. And I think he wants us to keep that, that momentum, that faith, that courage and boldness that he started putting into us last year. I believe this year he wants to see it come to fruition and bear fruit. So go back, have a look, listen to this. Uh, so the podcast is up to date. Today's question we will get to in just a moment. But first of all, I want to ask, what do you think is in this box? We've had one guess, chocolate. Egg and chips. Egg and chips. Nothing. Nothing? Oh, we've got a realist in our midst. <laughs> Questions. Questions? Something. Something. Ah, oh. you're like the agnostic of this illustration. There might be something in there. Any other guesses? Chocolate. Please look. Chocolate. I mean, so Devro's right. There is something. Brenda's wrong. That it's not nothing. What do you think might be in here? Biscuits, chocolates, biscuits. I mean, it's quite light. There's not very many chocolates. There's not very many chocolates. There might just about, if we start from the front. Any other guesses? That would be remarkably well prepared. And I love that you think I could be that well prepared. Rocks. <laughs> Rocks? Do you think it could be rocks? I mean, it sounds a bit loud if you shake it enough. We've had some different guesses here. Can everyone be right? Well, if I was a particular type of person, I could have put all sorts of different things in here and then, yeah, kind of everybody could be right. No, everyone can't be right. There is something in this box and you've had your best guess. There is a right answer, annoyingly. It's not, it's not the paper for questions. This is my kindling collection. I like fire pits, and uh, to get it going, paper is easier to light than wood sometimes, so I crumple up the paper, 
and that is what is in here. But with, sorry, Becky. I, to be fair, I probably should have got a less exciting looking box. We have, we have got Rocky Road pieces on there. So there is chocolate in the room. There is chocolate in the room. Don't worry. This is paper. This is going to burn so at some point uh, when I next go into the garden and light my fire pit. Some people want to say that all faiths are equally valid. Today's question is, don't all roads lead to God? A little bit like, you know, every guess about what is in that box being correct. People want to say, well, you know what? What's true for you isn't true for me. What's true for them isn't true for you. It's all fair, right? I mean, who are we to say that one is better than the other? It often gets talked about in the same way that we used to talk about Rome. All roads lead to Rome, they used to say. Uh, Terry Pratchett, if anyone's a Discworld fan, and I'll... I'm looking at the blank faces, but there's a, there's a city in the Discworld called Ankhmore Pork, and it's supposed to be like Rome in the Discworld world. And he says, well, to be fair, actually, that's a common misconception. It's more accurate to say all roads lead away from Ankhmore Pork. So maybe not all roads lead to Rome, but in the same way, some claim it's all good, all faiths lead to God anyway. Does that make sense? Can it make sense? There is another way I've heard it is an ancient Indian parable. Has anyone heard about the blind men and the elephant? Yeah? Got one person who has. It, this parable first appears in some Buddhist holy texts, but also features in Jain, Hindu, Baha'i, and Sufi Islamic texts. And the basic point of it, or the, the premise of it, is that there are some blind men who have never experienced an elephant before, and they come across one as they're walking together. And they want to work out what this animal is like. So they each touch the animal and they try and describe it to one another. Some people say, well, it's like a thick, long snake as they're stroking the trunk. Another one touches the tusk and says, actually, no, this is hard and sharp. It's like a spear. The ears lead another one to say, no, elephants are like huge fans to cool you down in the heat of the summer. Someone touches the vast side of the elephant and says, elephants are like walls. They are solid. You can't get through it. Another one touches one of the legs and says, no, this is like a tree. There's a strong trunk reaching up toward the sky. And then the final man maybe got the short straw is at the other end. <laughs> and he was investigating the, the tail of the elephant. And he said, no, no, I'm, you're all wrong. Elephants are like rope. Now, the original point of the parable is that people base their views on incomplete experiences of reality and often confidently share their thoughts as if they're the only valid ones and they ignore other people's equally valid perspectives. In the 19th century, an American poet, John Godfrey Sachs, rewrote a version of this parable as a poem. And the final verse he wrote as an explanation that the elephant is a metaphor for God. And the various blind men represent the religions that disagree on something that no one has fully experienced. And this approach to religion is deeply, deeply attractive to modern Western progressive thinking. 
It suggests that we can be tolerant and respectful of different religious views. We can be nice about the differences between us while claiming to accept the importance of faith. And we can avoid debates that have traditionally gotten heated about who is right and who is wrong. Sounds good, right? It's a way to make multiculturalism work. Is this a valid way to approach religious claims? Well, let's start where we can agree. The parable isn't totally incorrect or invalid. Because you see, the atheists, realists, a bit like Brenda, might say there's nothing in the box. I'm not claiming Brenda's an atheist. <laughs> atheists will say there is nothing. There's just what we can see, feel, hear, taste, touch. But this parable presumes that there is something more to be experienced and described. C.S. Lewis says this, if you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all the way through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. He says that in his book, Mere Christianity. You see, we can agree with every other religion that there is more to this world than the physical stuff that we interact with on a daily basis. He goes on to say, if you are a Christian, you are free to think that all of these religions, even the queerest ones, apologies for the language it was written in the 50s, even the queerest ones, even the ones that just make you think, how can people believe that? I'm thinking like voodoo magic. Uh, in a Brazilian context, there's an equivalent to voodoo called cordon bleu. And it's all about rituals and magic and summoning demons and all of that. Even the queerest ones contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to the most. When I became a Christian, I was all able to take a more liberal view. We don't have to agree on all of the details, but we can at least agree there is something more. There is something spiritual. There is something above and beyond the material. The atheist can't say that, and they have to say everyone else is wrong. I think the other valid point about this parable is it is true that humans can tend toward dogmatism without considering all angles and perspectives. It's fair. Perspective can matter, and it is important to weigh up different people's perspectives when investigating the truth of a matter. This is why our court system allows both defendant and prosecutor to call witnesses to make their case. But we can get the story completely wrong when we only consider one perspective. Like poor old Prince William. Anyone seen the picture of Prince William shortly after his child was his youngest child was born? Look at that picture. Damning, right? Prince William flipped the bird at the people in the crowd and at the paparazzi. I mean, who does he think he is? Okay, he's a prince. And okay, yeah, childbirth and labor is highly draining and highly emotional, but he's supposed to serve us. Might have made some people like him a little bit more, actually, to be fair, because there are some people like that in the world. But there's only one problem. That isn't what happened. That is not what happened. What happened was this. Take a picture from the other perspective, and you can see he's actually counting his kids. One, two, three. 
It's an unfortunate angle, that first one. But perspective does matter. But we can't agree with the parable wholesale. The parable is far from perfect. You see, each person gets the elephant wrong. Even if they get elements of it right, they're right. The trunk is a bit like a big, fat, long snake. They're right. The legs are like a tree trunk. And the side of an elephant is forbidding and impassable like a wall. But they get the entire creature wrong. Their descriptions were partial and contradictory. The only thing they agreed on was that there was an elephant to be investigated, experienced, and described. The bigger problem I have is about the point of the parable. The point of the parable almost patronizingly says, well, one faith is as good as another. I'm sorry, my faith is not as good as Satanism. My faith is not as good as those faiths that denigrate whole groups of people. It's not. Just like the blind people, the major world religions each disagree significantly in their views of what the elephant truly is, in ways that you can't synthesize and you can't kind of hand wave and say, well, it'll all make sense when you get the full picture. For example, how many gods are there? One. We believe one. Buddhism sidesteps the question somewhat and kind of says, well, there's something spiritual that we all return to when we finally attain that state of nirvana. Others are monotheists, monotheistic. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Sikhism, Baha'i. Uh, there are some claims that Zoroastrianism, an ancient Indian religion, was also monotheistic. Some are polytheistic. Modern neo-pagan Wicca is polytheistic. They believe in the old gods that people used to believe in before Christianity came along. There's pantheism that says, actually, there's, there's not even really a personal god to know or be known by. God is everything around us. Hinduism is difficult to nail down, actually. Some believe that there is one supreme being that they call Brahman. Others believe that from Brahman emerged the other deities of varying significance. They've got really super important gods in their pantheon, and they've got littler gods, less important gods. To be fair, actually, even Christianity is a bit of a special case. Because we believe in one God, yes, but we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is not simply a single person like Islam or Judaism would teach or Sikhism. We believe that within God there are three persons made of one essence that is wholly owned by each person and fully shared with the other persons in the Godhead. Yes. We are different as well. So how many gods? Different. You can't reconcile them. What about the nature of life after death? Some believe in reincarnation guided by karma. Some believe that the ultimate aim is attaining nirvana, where you're kind of just poured out into this ocean of consciousness and cease to be as an individual, but you are at least at perfect peace. That's the aim of Buddhism. Some people say that it's death followed by nothingness. Some people say that it's death followed by judgment and eternal consequences, that what you're going to go to the nice place or the bad place. If you can deal with the philosophy, the good place on Netflix is actually quite entertaining. Utterly horrible philosophy, but quite entertaining. People like us believe that death is followed by personal communion with God. 
if you put your trust in Jesus. There are differences in the stories told as the foundation and the explanation of their faith. There are differences in the accepted teachers, prophets and gurus. There are differences in how each religion should be practiced. There are some commonalities, sure, but each faith has a different code, rhythm, set of practices. You've got the five pillars of Islam. You've got the five Ks of Sikhism. You've got liturgies or lack of them within Christianity. We are not very liturgical here. We don't do a stand up, sit down, speak all this bit at the same time. That isn't our sort of Christianity, but not too far away in St. Margaret's, they would be. They will be standing up, they'll be reciting the creed, they'll be reciting the same prayers at the same time, etc., etc. There are commonalities like prayer and fasting, but even there, there are differences about when you should pray, how often you should pray, what words to say, who to say them to. Some encourage corporate singing like us. Others have professionals or trained people to perform the worship for them. Some still make sacrifices of different kinds, and there are different feast days and holy days. And to say that while all the differences will pan out in the end, all faiths lead to God, trivializes the differences. It patronizes and infantilizes and actually fails to respect each religion on its own terms. Because each faith takes their view sincerely and deeply seriously. And here's the problem. Each one believes that they've got it right. Yeah? Otherwise, why believe it? Why live it? C.S. Lewis again goes on to say, but of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. As a Christian, I can celebrate the commonality that we have with other faiths. I can say, yes, Islam, you've got it right, there is one God. There aren't lots and lots of gods. But not very long after that, I have to start disagreeing with them again. They're closer than Hinduism, maybe, but they are still not the Christian faith. As a Christian, I can't say that the areas we disagree on don't matter or are unimportant. We can't say it. So how can we know which is true? In some ways, there isn't a shortcut. You have to investigate, you have to listen and give each one a fair hearing to see if they line up with evidence and the way the world works. For the rest of this morning's message, I want to share some of the claims that Christianity makes, including the unique facets that can't be synthesized with other faiths. Before I do that, I want to just pivot and use a different illustration than the disappointing chocolate box. <laughs> Let's imagine... Actually, we don't have to imagine it. The room next door is eerily quiet. It isn't usually that quiet. <laughs> Fair enough. I've chosen the right week or the wrong week for this illustration. <laughs> Let's imagine that the room next door has something in it. There are no windows. We can't hear anything. And we want to know what's in that room. How can we do that? Door's locked. There is no window. I know there is over there, but we're, we're replacing with imaginary doors. Well, we can simply guess or make conjecture. Philosophers throughout history have sought to do this. 
they make and they debate proposals about what is in the other room, what impact it should have on us, how we should live, etc., etc. It may be based on different sorts of evidence, but it isn't based on experiencing the other room. We can knock on the door. Other faiths actively knock on the door, trying to get the attention of whoever or whatever may be in the room. Whole systems have been built to allow others to embark on that same experimental journey. That is what each religion is. It's trying to knock on that door and see what responds. We can listen to the response. Several religions make claims to have received a response from the other side. You've got prophets who have seen visions, people who have heard the voice of God and written them down in holy texts that we are supposed to study and follow. Judaism, Islam, Sikhism and Mormonism certainly believe this as we do. Place, first place I want to go to is that we don't believe that God has been silent. He has spoken throughout history. He's spoken through nature. The Psalms talk about the glory of God is revealed through the things that we can see, hear, taste, touch, etc. Paul talks about we are without excuse because we can see from the things that have been made that there is a creator. He speaks through nature. He speaks through our consciences. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis starts off by looking at, isn't it curious that all of the different religions have a very, very similar moral code? And he points to that as evidence that God, the God we believe in, exists and has sprinkled that throughout humanity. He speaks through actions in history. He gave Israel the Torah, and here I'm talking about the things that are now in this book. He performed miracles on behalf of Israel. He judged and exiled both Israel and Judah, and he brought Judah back to the promised land. God spoke through prophets receiving visions and bringing correction to the people of Israel. And then if we look at the New Testament, he spoke through gospel writers collating the biographies of Jesus' life and through apostles writing letters to churches in their care. We looked at this last week, so I can't dwell on it, but the Bible exhibits characteristics that, to my mind, support the belief that God has truly spoken through this book. We looked at the fact that there are consistent themes throughout the whole Bible, even though it was written over 2,000 years with 40 different authors on three different continents. It is amazing that you have the consistency you have in here. We looked at how there's external support from archaeology and non-Christian historians. We didn't look at it too much, but we kind of hinted at the fact that there are predictions and prophecies in the Bible that have been proved true. The only Bible, the only, <laughs> the only Bible, the only prophecies that haven't happened yet are the ones that can't have happened yet because they're about the end of the world. We can be confident that this book is God himself speaking. If you want to look into the claims of the Christian faith, starting with reading the Bible is a fantastic start. As you do it, you're going to find that Jesus Christ is central to our faith. We've heard his name this morning again and again. Let's consider him now by looking a little bit at the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jumping a few verses to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then jumping again to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. See, John's claim about Jesus, right from the very first verse, is that God himself has come to planet Earth. If we take that picture, that that image of the other room, what's in the other room? How can we know? Well, the one who lives on the other side has unlocked the door and come in himself, is what John is saying. That word was with God in the beginning, was himself God, and created all things. That word has become flesh and lived among us, being seen by humans around him, who wrote down what we have in the New Testament in this Bible. While no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, has revealed him. This also highlights the other unique aspect of our faith. Every other faith puts the onus on us. You've got to knock on the door. You've got to study. You've got to pray. You've got to seek enlightenment. You've got to try really hard to ascend and connect. You must, you must, you must. In Christianity, God comes to us. We don't take the initiative. He does. We don't try harder and try harder and try harder, as we read at the beginning. Sorry, I feel like there's a sneeze. (laughs) Sorry, more manly sneeze. True. As we read at the beginning in Romans, it is by grace that we have been saved. C.S. Lewis makes this point in Mere Christianity. If you want to see the defining difference between Christianity and every other faith, faith, it is grace. John chapter 14, verse 6. We all know this one. John 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Incidentally, he is all these things because we lost all those things by rebelling against God. We lost our way. The reason we have all these religions is because we lost our way. We lost our sense of truth and reality. We lost the life, like God himself said, if you eat of that fruit in the day you eat of it, you will die. Sure, it wasn't a physical death, but it was a spiritual death. Jesus is the way. Yes, by his teachings, by his example, but actually he himself is the way. We come back to God by being in relationship with him. He is the truth, not a truth, the truth. And the other word for truth that you could use is reality. 
He is the reality. He is the way things are. If you want to know truth, you look at Jesus Christ and the life. We lost life when we ate that wrong fruit in the garden, but he brings it to us. Actually, he doesn't just bring it to us. He is our life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's important because some of the world's religions do work depending on what you're wanting. Some religions will experience answered prayer because they are working with the elemental things of how the world works. There is a, a law that Paul talks about of sowing and reaping that isn't actually just about as our lives as Christians. It's almost just written into reality. It comes into its fullness in Christ, but there are principles in the world that make other religions look successful depending on what your aim is. If you want peace and mindfulness, Buddhism is your religion. It does kind of work on a soulish level. But if you want the Father, if you want God himself, that is Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. You'll often hear people talk about Jesus is offering eternal life. What is eternal life? Genuine question. What do you think eternal life is? Life without end? Life forever? It is. But eternal life, defined that way, makes it sound like something that starts after you die. This is what Jesus says eternal life is. John chapter 17, when he's praying before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life isn't just life that never ends. It's a different quality of life that comes by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing him is the nature of eternal life. It isn't something we receive away from him. There's a, there's a translation that I don't like very much because it says the way to have eternal life is by knowing you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That makes attaining eternal life the goal instead of what it actually is. The nature of eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. That is what eternal life is. And that starts here and now. And it goes on into eternity. How? How do we access this eternal life? By believing. By, believing. By admitting that, yes, we joined in with Adam's rebellion. We got it wrong. We lost our way. We lost the truth. We lost our life. But seeing that he offers it to us. And he offers it to us, not by some abstract gift, not by some thing that he can bestow. He actually offers us it 
by dying, by going to the cross, by taking the penalty, that death that we deserved upon himself so that he can take it away from us forever. He died, he was buried, he rose again to eternal life. We share in that life when we say sorry to him and say, we believe in you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on that cross. Forgive me, please. Come, let me know you, please. Show me who you are. That is what is on offer. That is what the Christian faith is all about. I hope you've seen why we can't just say all faiths lead to God this morning. If nothing else, I've already said some spiritualities don't even believe there is a personal God to be led to, let alone all the other faiths pointing in different directions and giving different contradictory answers. It isn't honouring or respectful to say that everyone's got a point or is equally valid. It's actually disrespectful to pat each faith on the head and say, there, 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 you're just as valid as all the others. No faith sees itself like that. And we shouldn't either. If we are going to be truly respectful, we must recognise that each faith makes exclusive truth claims that you cannot be reconciled. You cannot reconcile them. And they need to be investigated honestly and fairly. And I hope in what I've shared about the Christian faith, I know everyone in this room has made that decision. But those listening on the podcast, those friends of yours who you go and share this with, I'm hoping that their interest is piqued to find out more about Jesus. Just like last week, there are some books that you can look up if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the life of Jesus and the claims of Christianity. One of them, Original Jesus by Carl Lafferton. There are copies of this on the table at the back that you can take away today. If you want it for yourself, if you want to take one away for your friend or your colleague, um, you are welcome to. He just looks at who and what Jesus really is and what he accomplished. There is How to See Life, a guide in 321 by Glenn Scrivener. Uh, it's just an overview of the Christian faith. And the 321 bit is about... Um, seeing God as triune, seeing life through the lens of the two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And then the one, if I remember rightly, is how you are going to respond to the offer that God makes to you. This is an updated version. I haven't actually read that, but I know Glenn Scrivener, I trust him. It's going to do you good to read it. Uh, the other two we've already mentioned, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Really good book. Fantastic answers to some of the questions that we might not get onto. Um, really, really worth looking up. And I've quoted it several times today, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you have any questions, send them in. Uh, I've got some. Some people have emailed me in. Thank you, Alex. We got some others at the Word and Worship Church at home evening. But if you've got a question that hasn't been answered, if you've got a question from what I've said this morning or last week, let us know. And on that last week, on the uh, what must be the 18th of February, I think it is. Quick maths. Um, you can. We're going to run through any questions left over as quickly as we can. I will take questions on the morning, but I would really appreciate having a bit of advance notice if possible. It just means you might get a better quality answer if nothing else. 
we're going to worship in just a moment. Shall we end our time by praying? Sorry. Sorry, Dave. He does. Yeah. Yeah, Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. That's the offer. And actually, that is an offer that is relevant to everyone in this room because that was first made to a church. That was first made to a church that the book of Revelation was being sent to. So it is possible, even after coming to faith in Jesus, to back off from relationship a little bit. Jesus is knocking. And he wants to come in and eat with you. Thank you, Dave. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that uh, we don't have to give in to the confusion that reigns in this age, Lord Jesus. We don't have to glibly say, well, uh, potato, potato, it all, yeah, it all leads to the same direction, surely. No, we know, Lord Jesus, that, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Lord, whatever is not aligned with you, anything that is not found in you, is not truth. Lord, we can look to you, we can trust you, we can put our hope and our faith in you because you have come from the other side of the door. You know exactly what God is like because you are God. Amen. And you came to show us who your father is like so that we can know him for ourselves. Lord, I want to pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that we would avail ourselves of the way to the Father that you offer to us. Lord, that we will fellowship with you, that we will seek you, knowing that you first saw us and you bring us life by trusting in your name. Lord, if anyone needs to hear that invitation that you are knocking on their heart today, Lord, I pray that that will take root and it will grow and it will bear fruit. Thank you for your presence with us today in the worship, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you, oh, you have so much life for us. You have so much hope for us. You want us to, to live that Emmanuel, God with us life, which is only available through you. Lead us into that, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.